Uh, tonight's topic is regulating complexity in financial markets. <clears throat> so let's talk a bit about complexity. Um, in recent articles, I've argued that most of the causes of the global financial crisis can be divided conceptually into the categories of conflicts, complacency, complexity, and a type of tragedy of the commons. I mentioned that type of tragedy of the commons last night. <clears throat> so you have conflicts, complacency, complexity, and the TOC, tragedy of the commons. I refer to this sometimes as the three C's and the TOC. So I want to refer to that during this talk. That's what it means. Now, one might even argue there should be a fourth C, should be four C's in the TOC, complacency, conflicts, complexity, and cupidity, or greed. But greed is so ingrained in human nature and so intertwined with the other categories, I don't think it adds anything to view it as a separate category. Furthermore, government cannot realistically legislate against greed. And also, in moderation, greed is positive. It stimulates trade and commerce through the profit motive. So let me focus today, of these three C's in a TOC, on the C, one of these factors I regard the greatest challenge for this century for our financial system, and that's complexity. Complexity in financial markets doesn't arise necessarily for complexity's sake, nor does it arise from a desire to confuse. I think it arises in response to a demand by investors for securities that meet their particular investment needs and their appetite for ever higher rates of return. It also can arise in order to facilitate the transfer and trading of risk to those who prefer to hold it, which promotes efficiency. But as we'll discuss tonight, complexity can also impair markets and investments in several interrelated ways. <clears throat> First, let's consider complexities of the assets underlying investment securities and of the means of originating those assets. Now, these complexities can lead to a failure of lending standards and also to unanticipated defaults. The assets underlying investment securities can include a wide range of rights to payment, which include, as you may know from the recent financial crisis, mortgage loans. Now, each type of underlying right to payment, sometimes called a financial asset, requires a separate approach to modeling, including estimation of the default risk, the interest rate risk, and the prepayment risk. To further complicate matters, prepayment risk is correlated with interest rate risk. So when interest rates fall, borrowers are more likely to prepay. When interest rates rise, borrowers are more likely to default. Furthermore, these risks are dynamic. They fluctuate over time. Now, if you didn't get everything I said, the whole point is to make you see it gets to be complex. Okay? It can be complicated. So that's the complications or complexities of the assets underlying or backing these securities. You also have complexities of the means of originating or creating these assets. And this can lead to a failure of lending standards. There's something called the originate 
to distribute model of mortgage lending. And under this model, a lender to a borrower, let's say you, are, you, know, you want to borrow money to buy a home, you would borrow the money from a lender. The lender that would originate that loan but then would distribute it, would sell that loan to a third party that would probably package it to back the issuance of securities. And as I'll discuss, the complexities of this originate-to-distribute model also is thought to have led to the financial crisis. Now, consider also the complexities of the securities themselves that are backed by these assets. The financial crisis started with, with mortgage-backed securities, and they're somewhat representative of the types of securities I'd like to discuss. In the most basic form, mortgage-backed securities, sometimes referred to as MBS, are issued by special purpose vehicles, sometimes referred to as SPVs. And uh, you sometimes call them special purpose entities, SPEs. So you have these special purpose vehicles or entities basically issuing mortgage-backed securities. Payment on the securities is derived directly from collections on the mortgage loans. You also have, I'm going to make a diagram in a second to try to help this out because it can get very complicated. Um, you also have more complex forms of mortgage-backed securities which include things called collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs. And in that case, payment derives directly from a mixed pool of mortgage loans and sometimes other types of financial assets owned by the SPV. And then there are things called ABS CDO securities. In this case, payment derives from both mortgage-backed securities and CDO securities that are owned by the SPV. And therefore, the payment indirectly comes from the assets underlying the mortgage-backed securities and CDO securities. In each case, you have a special purpose vehicle, or SPV. And the, you also have investors in each case. The SPV will issue securities to the investors who basically will pay cash. Okay. Now, in this case of mortgage-backed securities, the SPV's assets will consist of mortgage loans, okay? And that's basically MBS, uh, which is a form of securitization. In the CDO structure, collateralized debt obligation, typically you'll have different types of underlying assets. You might have mortgage-backed securities, you may have other types of financial assets or rights to payment. And in the ABS CDO, you're going to have different types of CDO securities, different types of MBS securities, and other assets. It's not that you have a right to payment, a basic right to payment here. You actually have securities here of the type issued in these types of transactions. And the purpose for doing this diagram, again, is simply to illustrate that this can get somewhat complex. Okay, so you do have these different forms of securities. They're very difficult to understand sometimes, and this is a very sim simplification. And therefore, the complexity of the securities 
can actually impair disclosure. They can deprive investors and market participants of the understanding needed for markets to operate effectively. Let's assume that all the information about a complex structure is disclosed. Sometimes it's so complex that the amount of information that must be analyzed to value the investment with certainty is simply uh, cannot be done. You have something called rational ignorance theory that says there's a point at which the benefit obtained from additional analysis can be outweighed or at least can appear to be outweighed by the cost of performing the analysis. And the complexity of many modern investment securities appears to exceed that point. Now, the complexity of securities not only can impair disclosure, it also can, can basically obfuscate consequences. When securities are highly complex, the parties reviewing the securities or even structuring the deals may not always appreciate all the consequences. And this is especially the case when the payoffs on the securities are linked to unrelated events or are nonlinear. Derivative instruments, for example, have payoffs in many cases that are not directly related to the prices of the underlying securities. Um, in addition to this, because things are so complex, the managers, the senior managers of a firm trying to understand what the risk is will not want to be given all this information. They'll want to look to very simple simplifications to represent what the risk is. And uh, this is typically done by mathematical models. And the most important model is VAR, or value at risk. This model is used to reducing investment risk to a number. And you created a problem, or this created a problem, because managers of firms who were responsible for evaluating these risks basically saw that you can manipulate the VAR model, which assumes that risk that is very small, typically less than 5%, in some cases less than 1%, risk that is very small to occur within a limited time framework can be treated as zero. And so these managers were essentially telling their seniors, their senior managers, that here we have complex but very high yielding, high rate of return investments that have zero risk. Almost too good to be true, but the senior managers basically saw the models. The models were correct insofar as they went. But what the more junior managers did not tell the senior managers is that the risk was very small. But in that very small event the risk occurred, the consequences could be catastrophic. Now, Complexities of securities also can make financial markets more susceptible to financial contagion. In the recent financial crisis, the over-reliance on investment-grade ratings as a substitute for trying to understand complexity meant that when certain investment-grade rated securities started losing money, investors panicked, fearing that other investment-grade rated securities 
would likewise default, and you had that form of contagion. Another problem with securities, and the last one I'll mention, is that complexities of securities can also make the financial markets more susceptible to fraud. And this is especially in the case of asset-backed securities. Consider that when a company issues corporate bonds, basically debt obligations for which the company is responsible, the investors purchase the bonds based on the company's ability to pay. And this ability to pay is tied strongly to the company's reputation for financial integrity and good governance. Now, there certainly have been frauds, like Parmalat, where the reality completely belied the company's reputation. But a reputation that's built up slowly is harder to fake. With the use of asset-backed securities, though, even companies without public reputations can issue, direct, indirectly issue securities backed by their financial assets. So what's looked at is not the company per se, but the financial assets themselves. And part of the problem is that a lot of the monitoring of these underlying financial assets is not done by independent third parties, but rather is done by the very company that wants to obtain the financing. And so this monitoring or servicing is not independent of the company, and this can lead to fraud. So we've looked so far at complexities of the assets underlying securities, and we've also looked at the complexities of the securities themselves. Let's now look at the complexities of the financial markets. These complexities can aggravate the failures. Financial markets are effectively complex networks of individual firms and markets that are both interconnected and interactive. Now, the most straightforward interconnection example is through contracting, and the best example of that is derivatives contracts. The failure of a given market participant can cause a default on its obligations to other market participants who, in turn, may default on their own obligations to yet other market participants. And this can lead to a domino-type collapse. <clears throat> this is made worse by the ability of modern financial markets to transmit information rapidly, often effectively instantaneously. And this exemplifies market interactivity, sometimes referred to as tight coupling, an engineering term. This can, an example of this would be newly developed trading technologies that have greatly increased the speed of processing and trading on information. High-frequency algorithmic trading systems relying on computerized models are capable of analyzing vast quantities of market data and transmitting thousands of messages, order messages, each second. But because of the speed with which the trading occurs, Erroneous trades basically can lead to substantial losses before they're discovered. And furthermore, automated stop-loss orders based on preset criteria can trigger a chain reaction of selling 
without the time or the opportunity for human judgment to intervene. So this type of complex environment can lead to unintended consequences. An example would be mark-to-market or fair value accounting. Um, it's generally intended to reduce risk. What it does, it says that the market price of securities that a firm is holding goes down. The firm must basically reflect that. Um, but mark-to-market accounting can sometimes have perverse effects on systemic stability if there are times of market turbulence. The recent financial crisis has shown that where companies, banks, firms, have been forced to sell assets to meet margin calls, this can depress asset prices, requiring more forced sales of assets, which in turn depress asset prices even further, resulting in a downward spiral. So the question for tonight is, how should these types of failures resulting from complexity be addressed? If we catalog the nature of these failures, I think that we can come to three different uh, uh, categories. First is information uncertainty, like the failure of disclosure. Second is what I refer to as non-linearity or non-linear feedback and tight coupling, the fact that you know, there's not a direct relationship and that things can happen very quickly. And the third failure is the misalignment of interests and incentives among market participants. Now, these types of failures are similar to failures that engineers have long faced when working with complex systems that have nonlinear feedback effects. And many characteristics of complex engineering systems actually are similar to those of financial markets. And for these reasons, I would argue, any analysis of market failures resulting from complexity should take into account chaos theory. And chaos theory helps to inform engineers about complex systems with nonlinear feedback effects. So let's take these failures and see how we can address them. First failure, recall, was information failures resulting or arising from uncertainty. Uncertainty can cause a variety of financial market failures. I mentioned impairing securities disclosure. How can we deal with uncertainty? We could tolerate it. We could prohibit transactions that are very complex and for which disclosure would otherwise be impaired. Or we could try to implement supplemental protections to minimize the impairment. Let's take toleration first. I don't think we can completely tolerate impairment of disclosure because that makes securities markets inefficient. The whole concept of markets is that you have, at least if not perfect, at least good information in terms on both sides and all sides, investors and the sellers. And where you have a complete lack of information, that is going to make it very difficult to have a functioning market. Now, another possibility I mentioned, prohibiting transactions that are highly complex for which disclosure would be impaired, 
That doesn't work either because you would inadvertently ban many beneficial transactions because things are increasingly complex. And part of the problem is, as humans, we can't fully understand the complexities. Regulatory attempts to limit uncertainty are unlikely to work. Now, the most obvious approach would be to try to standardize, standardize financial products. But standardization could undermine the efficiencies that arise when securities are tailored to the particular needs of investors. Even the Dodd-Frank Act in the U.S., which attempts to require the centralized clearing and settlement of derivatives contracts in order to manage counterparty risk, it recognizes that standardization, which is needed to effectuate centralized clearing and settlement, should not include all derivatives contracts. There is a need for flexibility and creativity. Implementing cost-effective supplemental protections therefore appears to be the best approach to the problem of impaired disclosure. And what types of supplemental protections might there be? One would be guarantees by the seller of the products, such as warranties and certifications of quality. Now, in a limited sense, the Dodd-Frank Act in the U.S. mandates a form of seller guarantee, and I use it in quotes. It requires the sellers of mortgage and other asset-backed securities to hold minimum unhedged exposure to the securities being sold. And in this way, the seller of these securities puts, quote, skin in the game. It's an awful phrase, but skin in the game. The idea is that some of their skin is at risk. And that signals the seller's belief in the safety of the securities. This approach, however, can sometimes backfire. For example, prior to the financial crisis, underwriters customarily purchased some so-called first loss position of the subordinated or lowest ranked uh, class of certain ABS CDO securities to demonstrate their belief in the quality of the securities being sold. Unfortunately, at least some of these underwriters did not fully understand the risks that were associated with the securities that they purchased. And this results in what I referred to yesterday as a mutual misinformation problem. The seller or underwriter, by signaling its confidence in the securities being sold, inadvertently misleads the um, buyer into buying these securities. So that could be a problem. Now, another type of certification of quality that in theory can improve securities disclosure is where certification achieves an economy of scale. And this type of approach is currently employed through rating agency ratings, ratings like issued by Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. But in the recent financial crisis, rating agencies were said to contribute to the crisis. And so the question is, can we rely on them or some other type of centralized certification basis? I believe that there are really no perfect solutions to the problems of uncertainty. 
government already mandates in the U.S., for example, minimum investor sophistication for investing in complex securities. Ironically, the most sophisticated financial institutions were the very investors who lost the most, most money in the financial crisis. Okay. Now let's turn from uh, information uncertainty to this failures, the failures arising from nonlinear feedback and tight coupling. And the most significant combination of this to date has been marking the market. And I mentioned the downward spiral in the prices of assets that has caused. You could have possible solutions, for example, to allow a firm that is otherwise required to mark the market the value of its assets to disseminate full disclosure. But the problem with tight coupling and nonlinearity is that financial markets evolve. And we're going to have other nonlinear feedback effects that undoubtedly will become tightly coupled in ways one cannot predict at present. We also cannot know how future financial crises will arise. And so a question would be, is there a way of looking at a more broad spectrum regulatory solution? Now, turning back to chaos theory, one such approach might be to establish, and I mentioned this, I introduced this concept yesterday, to establish a government entity to act as needed as a market liquidity provider last resort. And the idea would be to loosely couple the feedback effects. In addition to the arguments that I made yesterday, this approach takes inspiration from chaos theory. And chaos theory recognizes that failures are almost inevitable in complex systems. You're going to have failures. But the most successful complex systems are those in which the consequences of a failure are limited. And the idea of this market liquidity provider would be to try to mitigate the consequences of a failure by stabilizing markets. Now, in addition, the concept of a market liquidity provider looks to the type of engineering modularity that reduces the chance that a failure in one part of a complex system will systematically trigger a failure in another part of the system. When one component of a system fails, modularity enables repairs to be made before the entire system shuts down. And I believe that a market liquidity provider could work in this way. Now, the third failure I'll mention, again, is the misalignment of incentives. And complexity can cause several types of misalignment that can give rise to market failures. I mentioned the originate to distribute model, and let's focus on this for a moment. Again, this is the approach by which lenders will make loans. And once the loans are made, the lenders will sell the loans off to investors, essentially, uh, that will package them typically into asset or mortgage-backed securities. Now, the originate-to-distribute model can create a moral hazard problem because it misaligns the interests of the lenders and the ultimate owners of the loans 
which essentially, as we'll see, are the investors in these various securities. The loans are made here, and the investors ultimately purchase these securities there. So you have this conflict. Now, in theory, this conflict should not matter. In theory, separation of this origination and ownership basically should not create a problem because the ultimate owners, in this case the investors, should assess and value the risk before they buy their ownership positions, before they buy these securities. Now, you may argue that the lenders are better situated to make this evaluation than the ultimate owners, the investors. And that is true. But nonetheless, the investors should take steps to reduce, uh, if not to eliminate, the information asymmetry. The financial crisis shows that that does not occur. And the question is, why does practice diverge from theory? And I believe the reason is that the complexity of the securities, the assets underlying securities, the whole problem, makes it very difficult for the investors to fully appreciate what they are purchasing. And there's really no practical degree uh, that no practical thing they can do to completely reduce the information asymmetry. Furthermore, and I'll discuss this at the close of the talk, there is diversification of risk. And I believe also that the diversification of risk, and let me just describe what that is, you have loans made here, for example. The loans are now packaged, sold off to investors who buy the securities. A lender to a given uh, borrower here will have complete um, uh, risk to that borrower. If the borrower does not repay the lender, the lender basically will lose that money. But where the loans are packaged in pools and where investors buy securities which give them essentially undivided interest in these loans, the risk is diversified to this whole range of potential investors. And in this transaction here, you have massive diversification because, remember, these securities are these types of securities here. So you have diversification on this level, and then you have further diversification on that level there. And this, I think, creates a problem that I'll refer to as marginalizing risk. That is that any given investor's incentive to monitor and the, scene, the big picture is simply gone. So what can we do? As a regulatory matter, in the US, and I believe Europe, um, at least to address the originate to distribute problem, there's a requirement that loan originators retain some realistic risk of loss. This is the skin in the game I mentioned. Unfortunately, as I meant, you know, this solution of retaining skin in the game still creates the mutual misinformation problem. And that is that if you have a lender that makes mortgage loans and then sells them off and retains a certain exposure in the loan, or if you have underwriters that package the assets and sell off interest to investors, and if in each case this lender or the underwriter retains some of the risk, it will signal 
to the buyer, to the ultimate investor, that the risk is minimal because a person who knows most about it is okay with it. And if that person who actually knows most about the risk doesn't fully understand or doesn't fully appreciate the risk, that will truly mislead the investor or the ultimate buyer. Now, misalignment also can cause failure in the form of fraud. Um, I mentioned that in terms of asset-backed securities, the servicers, the parties who will service the underlying financial assets, tend to be the company that wants to raise the funding or a party affiliated with that company. And let me just give a concrete example here. Let's assume that I'm a company that is making, oh, let's say, loans to students to enable them to study at a trade school. And this is actually based on a case I, I consulted on. And the, the problem is that there is something wrong with the loans that are being made. I'm basically perpetrating a fraud in creating these loans. Many of these so-called borrowers do not really exist under these loans. Because there are hundreds, if not thousands, in most cases it will be thousands of these loans that are pooled together in order to create one of these transactions, it would be very uneconomic to have a third party come in and monitor those underlying loans. By monitoring, I mean to check out that all these students really have borrowed the money, to check out that all the students are paying money on a current basis. And you typically would have the original company act as this monitor called a servicer of the loans. And what that means is that if the company is perpetrating a fraud, the fraud is unlikely to be, unlikely to be discovered simply by the monitoring. And so the question is, what do we do about that type of misalignment? Um, in practice, uh, in some cases, there have been attempts to try to get independent servicers. But I think that in reality, the parties should always have the ability to try to uh, use the company as the servicer. There's nothing inherently wrong with a conflict as long as it is disclosed. But part of the problem that, we'll see, that we see is that um, there will come a time when regulation will be needed to try to address this because investors will sometimes forget the lessons of the past. They'll forget the frauds that have occurred They'll simply want to invest in order to get what they see as a rate of return, sometimes called going for the gold. Now, the final type of misalignment can occur when conflicts uh, exist among the firm's managers. And we referred to the VAR example, the value at risk. Um, this type of conflict uh, the conflict among or between the secondary managers of a firm and the most senior managers of a firm can be addressed, as we discussed yesterday, by paying the secondary managers 
on a long-term basis, such as paying them partly in stock, paying them uh, partly on a deferred compensation level, or paying them partly subject to clawback of some of the payments. But firms themselves cannot effectuate this because you have a collective action problem, and that is that any individual firm that wants to do this will find that it is uncompetitive in trying to hire the best people. And we also uh, looked yesterday at this problem and saw that this problem can be international. Even if a given nation enacts a law that says that compensation in this way should be long-term, that nation will now be uncompetitive, or at least its firms will be uncompetitive, in terms of the ability of firms in other nations to hire the best people. Because if those other nations do not, in the same way, restrict the payment of these managers, these managers are liable to go to nations that do not regulate. And so you will need not only national, but I think international regulation to solve this collective action problem. Now, let me talk about yet another approach to addressing systemic market failures that goes beyond what we've discussed so far. And one other approach might be, can we disrupt the mechanisms by which systemic shocks are transmitted? And the complexity problem here is that there may be multiple transmission mechanisms and the mechanisms themselves may be complicated and may change over time. <clears throat> now, based on a study of four financial crises over the past century, and these crises included the Great Depression and the recent global financial crisis, Professor Iman Anaptawe of UCLA and I have attempted to describe at least one transmission mechanism. We're not saying this is the only mechanism. We're simply saying this appears to be at least one. There may be others. And we argue that two otherwise independent correlations can combine to transmit localized economic shocks into broader systemic shocks. Now, these two correlations, the first correlation is what we refer to as an intra-firm correlation between a firm's financial integrity and the firm's exposure to risk from a low-probability adverse event. The second correlation is among firms and markets. And let me give some concrete examples of this. Let's consider the Great Depression. The causes of the Great Depression are still being debated but we believe that these two correlations working in combination may well have been important causal factors. Prior to the Depression, many banks had engaged in margin lending to risky borrowers, and this meant that they made loans to borrowers, and they took the, the loans were made to purchase stock in the stock market, and the price of shares in the stock market was rising. And the loans, basically, or the, st the stock that was purchased was pledged as collateral 
to the lenders. So banks that were engaged in margin lending would make the loans and take the purchased stock as collateral. And these banks did not care that much about the ability of the borrowers to repay because they were confident in the collateral value itself. Now, if the stock market had continued rising, these loans would have been fine. But part of the problem, and let me just step back and say that this lending on a margin basis secured by the stock represents the intra-institutional correlation between low probability risk, the risk the collateral value would go down, and firm integrity, the risk that if the collateral value did go down, that the firms making a lot of these margin loans could fail. Now, the Great Depression also illustrates how the first correlation, in combination with the second one, the interinstitutional correlation, can essentially potentiate the transmission of an economic shock into a broader, a broader systemic shock. When the prices of stocks, the stock market started dipping, and the prices of stocks started to go down, many of the banks that made these margin loans uh, began defaulting. And when they defaulted, in turn, they could not pay their obligations, the debts they owed to other banks. And therefore, the defaults by the margin lending banks created a chain of failures that affected other banks even beyond. And this was the second correlation. Again, there wasn't a complete understanding or at least appreciation of the impact that the margin lending bank failures would have on the banking system. Now, compare that to the global financial crisis, and I think you'll see some stark similarities. Like margin lending, the global financial crisis, the recent financial crisis, began when subprime mortgage loans were made and bundled together as securities. Now, these subprime mortgage loans were loans made to risky borrowers. And the lenders do not worry that much about the ability of the borrowers to repay because the loans were secured by the houses that were purchased with the proceeds of the loans, exact parallel to margin lending where the loans were secured by the stock that was purchased uh, with the proceeds of the loans. And also similar to the margin lending example, the subprime mortgage loans would retain their value as long as the price of homes continued to appreciate, as they had been doing for decades, just like the stock market before the Great Depression had been going up for quite some time. Now, when the home prices began falling, some of the mortgage-backed securities began defaulting, and this required financial firms heavily invested in these securities to write down their value causing these firms to appear, if not be, financially risky. And this represented a failure of these firms to see, or at least fully appreciate, the correlation between low probability risk, the risk that home prices could fall significantly, and firm integrity. And the financial crisis also involved a failure to see a correlation among financial institutions 
not only in, as in the case of the Great Depression among banks, but also in the case of the recent financial crisis between banks and other financial institutions on the one hand and financial markets on the other hand. And these um, failures combined to transmit the economic shocks and make them systemic. Now, Professor Notawe and I argue that in addressing these correlations, we need to look to the roots of the correlations and why do firms basically ignore low probability risk and why do they fail to see these overall connections. And we argue, and there's not enough time to go through it here, that it was the three C's in the TOC, the conflicts, complacency, complexity, and the tragedy of the commons that are referenced at the outset of the talk that really make it unlikely that market participants can be relied on to basically observe and protect against these correlations and to protect further against the correlations combining. And therefore, one needs regulatory intervention for accomplishing that. Now, the problem is that increasing complexity in the financial markets will make these correlations increasingly likely to arise and also will make the correlations increasingly likely to combine in the future. And complexity is virtually certain to increase and to have this effect. Again, why is complexity going to increase? You have profit opportunities inherent to complexity due to investor demand for securities that more precisely match their risks and reward preferences. You also have new technologies that will create um, basically uh, uh, a tighter coupling, uh, mean that things are more nonlinear in some cases. And you also have things like regulatory arbitrage. The more we enact regulation, the more people will seek to get around it and will look at uh, uh, basically inconsistent regulatory regimes, not only within countries, but also across borders. Now, the final thing I want to say is to come back to this problem I mentioned about dispersing risks. There are many unresolved questions associated with complexity, but there are also questions that have not been or are only beginning to be asked. And one of these questions is whether the complexity caused by risk dispersion can itself lead to market failures that cause market participants to underestimate and underprotect against risk, the so-called marginalization at risk. And this is something that I'd be happy to talk about afterwards. Okay, uh, those are all very, very good questions, and let me see if I can uh, begin to address them. Um, first of all, the question about Fannie and Freddie. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, in the U.S., quasi-governmental agencies that have the mission, essentially, of uh, really originating mortgage loans and packaging, or at least buying, either originating them, or in most cases, buying them, packaging them, and selling them off in MBS-type transactions. And um, part of the problem was that, the, at least in the U.S., was that the U.S. Congress 
um, put a lot of pressure on Fannie and Freddie to cause origination of these subprime loans. And the idea was that you had a lot of people, poor people or low-income people, who should be endowed with housing, essentially. And if these loans were made, these people could get the houses, and the idea would be that the houses would be the collateral. So a large reason you had so many subprime loans was because of the very government policy. Now, Fannie and Freddie um, ended up owning a lot of these, and there also was what people viewed as an implicit guarantee by Fannie and Freddie on the mortgage loans that they packaged, basically, and, and sold off. And uh, when the financial crisis began to hit, you, the mortgage uh, investors in the mortgage market were very concerned, would Fannie and Freddie that is, the government, stand behind the mortgage loans, and the announcement was made that they would, even though there was no official type of guarantee made. So I'm not sure that, I think the basic concept of Fannie and Freddie to basically buy up mortgage loans and securitize them will create a lot of money to basically enable new mortgages to be made. The essential mechanism here, uh, think of it simply, if you have a bank that has a certain amount of money and it uses all that money to make mortgage loans, it can't make new loans until it has more money. But if that bank can sell the loans, uh, essentially, through Fannie and Freddie, it can get the cash immediately and can then make the new loans. So I don't think the problem, I think that basic mechanism makes a lot of sense. I think it's been tainted by the financial crisis, and I think part of the main problem is the government pressure to make these subprime loans. In terms of the point that the regulators, supervisors, you know, government people don't understand what was going on, I, that's clear. I mean, no question about it. I think also, as you mentioned, that the skin in the game is unlikely to work, using the example of Merrill Lynch. Uh, that shows not only the supervisors, the government people, but many uh, people in the private sector did not fully understand what was going on. In terms of the credit rating agencies, Stan Poor's and Moody's, you use the example of Lehman going to, let's say, S&P, asking for a rating, not getting the rating they wanted, and therefore going to Moody's or Fitch or some other entity. And that could happen. Now, the rating agencies use methodologies. I'm sorry. It did happen. Yes. It, I mean, it did happen. It, it does, you know, it, it does happen. The question is whether those ratings were done fraudulently or not. Um, my experience with the rating agencies, and I've testified extensively before Congress, and I've also dealt a lot with them, is that I've never actually seen a case of out-and-out -out fraud. You do have the concept that models, rating agencies use mathematical models, and the models of Standard & Poor's will be different than the models of Moody's, will be different than the models of Fitch. Um, in the case you, cases you mentioned, I don't know if Lehman went to Moody's 
and then couldn't get the rating, they went to Standard & Poor's and vice versa. More likely, they went to Moody's and Standard & Poor's, couldn't get the rating, and then went to another rating agency like Fitch, a lesser agency that has, frankly, less, you know, less diligent standards. And that happens, and I've seen that happen a lot. But part of the constraint on that is the fact that the, the value of a rating is a function of the reputation of the rating agency, and that investors, in my experience, know and knew that a Staten & Poor's or a Moody's rating was far more valuable than a Fitch rating. So that could explain part of the problem. Uh, there are a lot of problems with rating agencies. The question is, what do you do about it? You have issues like the fact that rating agencies are paid by the issuer of the securities, which creates a conflict. How do you pay rating agencies? Another way to pay them would be not by the issuer of the securities, but by the investors in the securities. The difference between the SPV paying or the investors paying. And people have said, let's have the investors pay. If we can get around that collective action problem, maybe that would work, but I personally don't think so. And here's why. If you have the issuer of the securities pay, then the issuer is basically going to want the highest possible rating so that the interest rate on the securities can be as low as possible because the higher the rating, the safer the securities appear and therefore the more likely you are to have investors want to purchase those securities. So that would be one approach. But the in investors were to pay, they would want the lowest possible rating because that would mean that in order to sell the securities, the SPV would have to pay a higher degree of interest. So I'm not sure that works. Now, I'm wearing my, um, a wine tie, if anyone has noticed. This is a Commanderie de Bordeaux organization, and I'll use a wine example. The top wine expert in the world, at least reputed to be, is Robert Parker. And he has this magazine, the, you know, basically the wine advocate, and he rates wines. And he says, and I believe it, that he is not paid by the maker of the wine. So he does not receive payment from that. His payment is solely through the magazine itself and its subscription rate. Historically, that was how Staten & Poor's and Moody's made their money. That would be a perfect system, but that system cannot generate enough cash to support the level of expertise that rating agencies require. So I'm not sure you're going to ever have perfect solutions with the rating agencies. Um, the last thing I think you said was about the resolution systems. And by this, I assume you mean problems like when Lehman went bankrupt, it, how do we resolve a complex financial institution? And this is a problem that, you know, in the U.S., elsewhere, we're trying to work on. Um, there's no easy solution to it. Uh, the Dodd-Frank Act says that for systemically significant institutions, whatever they are, and they can be designated, they have to have what are referred to as living wills. Essentially, they have to have pre-planned mechanisms 
as to how they're going to liquidate in the event of a default. And one doesn't really know if that's a perfect solution. One doesn't even know whether liquidation should be the correct answer to that problem.